Hey there, welcome back to another episode of MVP Business, where we showcase leaders who live through their mission, vision, and passion. I'm your host, Steph Silver, owner of Vine Collective, a unique branding experience and coaching agency where we help businesses to connect with customers and employees and to navigate their personal journeys to overcome challenges and rise to the next level of their work, home, and spiritual lives. Today's guests are Karen and Brent Luby, co-owners of Desert Door Distillery and founders of Wild Spirit Wild Places. Desert Door distills and serves wild harvested Sotol spirits and is handcrafted in Driftwood, Texas. Wild Spirit Wild Places is a nonprofit established by Desert Door with a mission of preserving the untamed, awesome expanses of land across Texas. Thank you so much, guys, for joining me today. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. So tell us, when did you start Desert Door? When did it open? So Desert Door opened its doors Veterans Day, November of 2017. So we're about to celebrate five years. However, it was conceived a couple of years prior at the Macomb School, a graduate school of business, where I met my two partners who are also veterans. And we took a class, an elective course called New Venture Creation, where Desert Door, or what would become Desert Door, was our class project. So it was actually conceived in the summer of 2016. Tell me about what you were doing before then, because you were not a entrepreneur, especially for... Um, Much less a distiller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, the only thing I was qualified to do was fly airplanes. Mm-hmm. And But I had convinced Karen that there might be additional opportunity to go back to the private sector, vice going to the airlines, but I needed to learn how to communicate with the private sector because I'd been out, I'd been in the military for 21 years. And so I used my GI Bill to go back to um, graduate school in hopes that I could, you know, learn how to communicate and understand, you know, the business processes. And, and what were you doing, Karen? Well, at that time when we started the distillery, I was still working in the uh, public school systems. Mm-hmm. I was a, a researcher, educational researcher, and I evaluated educational programs. I'd spent, you know, 20, 30 years, almost 30 years in, in that realm. And um, I had worked with multiple nonprofits on looking at um, the effectiveness of their programs and informing state stakeholders about what was happening and and recommendations for making improvements. So, you know, when he started this, I had a very reliable, stable Mm -hmm. um, job that I loved. And um, it just seemed like the perfect time uh, to make the leap as he was transitioning from the Marine Corps. And um, there was nothing for us to lose um, and everything to gain from the experience. That's a really interesting perspective to say nothing for us to lose because a lot goes into building a business like this. So what about it felt like there was nothing to lose? Well, we had the unique circumstance of having government jobs, state and government jobs, right? So and they provided a level of income. Um, that was not going away anytime soon, you know, the military retirement that he had, and then my employment that I had currently at that time. So we had the finances to do something that we thought was pretty extravagant Mm -hmm. at the time, and seemed like a lot of fun and something that we had never dreamed of doing. And so, you know, it just it just made sense. And it seemed really exciting. It did. But that starting a distillery was not how I sold business school either. I had run some really large organizations in the Marine Corps mm-hmm. um, to the tune of having, I was operations officer of an entity that had 4,500 people under its purview, 
responsible for the training and care, had um, eight to nine billion of assets and holdings and had close to a $400 million annual operating budget and expressed to her that I'm pretty sure the guy in the private sector gets paid a little bit more than the major in the Marine Corps with that much responsibility. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, that's what I was planning to do was go back and learn how to parlay those life experiences in the Marine Corps to the private sector and get that baby C-level position. Mm-hmm. You know, I told her I got 10 years of hard work left in me. You know, we'll go do that, and then we'll go off and do whatever. But meeting my two partners, taking that class, and then coming back and asking her if it was okay, what are your thoughts about us starting a business? And she was fully supportive. I will say I was surprised, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she talks about, you know, you've gone from, you know, 20 plus years of stability to, you know, paychecks are coming. And now you're not getting paid at all because there's no revenue. Right. And then there's risk, right? And so all of that uncertainty, it's, it's, it makes for an interesting experience. Obviously, your experience in the military gave you the foundation of running balance sheet and, and handling employees and things like that. Did you feel like you were prepared and ready for what actually came to be in creating the business, building the building, distill, like there's so much into even getting it started and then running it is a different world altogether as well. The best way I can answer that is you plan, right? Mm -hmm. You make plans. And planning is free and planning is continuous. But whether it's in the military and you're planning against an adversary, adversary gets a vote, right? Whether you're planning for your business plan and you're going to market, the market conditions get a vote, right? So all of those things are very dynamic. And so while you think you're ready, there's always going to be adjustments that are going to have to be made. And largely, when you're starting a business, it's you're kind of building the airplane while you're trying to fly it. Yes. And and uh, you know, obviously, being in the military, you say the airplane. I always say, like, you're climbing up an invisible staircase, hoping that the next step is going to be there when you put your foot down. That's right. And hoping that it's going yeah. up. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, you slide down or, like me, uh, you know, you, you trip on your ball gown and roll down to the bottom and have to <laughs> walk your way back up. Or in our case, you build a... You build a project, a product mm-hmm. in this case, and is anybody going to come? Walk is anybody going to care? Mm-hmm. Right. So once you uh, you you had your plan and you you built the building, how long did it take to get your first um, bottle of Sotol? Four months. So from the time so we graduated in May of seventeen. We started our build-out in June of 17, and we opened our doors, soft opening to our friends and family in November. And did anybody walk in? They did. <laughs> Actually, um, yeah, we, we got quite a bit of attention, and we're still getting quite a bit mm-hmm. of attention. But yeah, no, the, the reception's been quite humbling. I mean, the number of people that come through our door today, I mean, if you would have told me that we would see 500-plus people a weekend five years ago, you could have knocked me over with a feather. But, mm-hmm. but the people, they, uh, it's been very, very well received. Can't be thankful enough for it. I will say something about the initial reception was when we put the distillery in, it wasn't built up very much in that area of driftwood that we, you know, it was a shell that we built out. Um, so there was some structure there. And so the local community, the neighbors, which were largely rural, very rural, were very curious and 
a little bit skeptical Mm -hmm. about what was going on in their neighborhood. Um, So it was very meaningful to us as they began to come in and they liked our product. It's kind of like having a baby and you want everybody to think your baby is beautiful and smart and, and wonderful. And so when when you get that local support from your neighbors, it's very, very meaningful. And then from your friends and family, too, is very meaningful. So that's kind of where we started from. And, um, and now we and, get people from New Zealand, from Argentina, from the UK. I mean, there's people from all over the globe that, that come here. How much time are you now spending still in in the distillery and, and meeting those people that are coming in? It varies. Um, we are in the very fortunate position right now. We just signed a national distribution deal with Southern Glazer Wine and Spirits. Mm. Congratulations. And well, thank you. Uh, very excited about the opportunity. And we are about to launch 10 new states. So... In this type of industry, the busiest months of the year for this industry, October, November, December. So probably be on the road quite a bit visiting, you know, new clients in those outer markets. So, but, so again, it varies. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide on SOTOL? Well, that goes back to the original class. So SOTOL was the class project. And the way the class is called New Venture Creation. And it was taught by Dr. Rob Adams. We actually lovingly refer to Desert Door as the house that Rob built. Mm-hmm. Ryan and I, so my two partners, Ryan and Judson, Ryan and I were the first to actually form a team. You, you form a team, the team becomes a company, the company comes up with an idea. You have to do the market research, the market validation, put the performance together, what's your go-to-market strategy, and then what's your exit, put it in a business plan and a pitch deck. That's, that's the course. There's no tests. You do a couple of case studies, a couple of two-page write-ups, there's some progress checks, but that's and then at the end of it, it culminates with you pitching your um, idea to a panel of would-be angel investors. Mm-hmm. Now they're all active investors, but there's no money's exchanging hands in here. This is just evaluation, right? Mm-hmm. Then they actually judge your plan and determine who who wins and then who gets what grade. So Ryan and I were initially going down the path of cargo drones. So think like Federal Express, UPS, but no pilots, right? Judson joined the team late and um, was like, guys, come on, this is the only course in this entire curriculum that we get to choose what we work on. Can we at least work on something cool? And we're like, we're not married to this. So what are your thoughts? And he was like, well, I always want to start a distillery. I was like, "Mm, the marina me likes that. So (laughs) let's, uh, let's go down that path. We're like, well, what do you want to distill? Don't know. But all very prideful Texans, which I would say most Texans are to the I tell folks that are from the outside looking in if you're not from here it looks like unbridled arrogance but we Texans just simply call it pride we wanted to distill something that we could brand as Texas we wanted to leverage Texas as a brand and then the more and more research that we did in every you know in the spirit space that you know a lot of folks leverage whatever their their brand is but uh, one of the three cornerstones of Desert Door is authenticity and so how do you you know how do you make a spirit uniquely authentically Texas, right? And so we stumbled through all of this. And so keep in mind, we'll get to the point where this was actually the decision point of going from the abstract to the market space, but we're still in the abstract. We're just trying to fulfill the class requirements, right? And trying to get a grade. So we're not making a distillery just yet. And uh, so we had numerous ideas. And then Judson, through his extended research of some of these ideas, stumbled upon the SOTOL. The Google came up with SOTOL. And 
he spent a lot of time in Fort Stockton as a kid. And he was like, I wonder if that's that Soto Mm. that my uncle and his friends would moonshine when I was a kid. And I grew up in Midland, so I knew what Sotol was, but Mm -hmm. I never really made the connection that that's, you know, what you make liquor out of. And it turns out it was. And so we started doing more and more research on the Sotol. Then we started learning about the history of the Sotol and how it's been around 10,000 years and how indigenous people survived on it for 10,000 years, not just for a source of sustenance, but they also used it as a material for, you know, weaving baskets, hats, sandals, mats, even uh, coffins. They used the um, sticks of the bloom for tools, uh, you know, for hunting and weapons. And we just started learning more and more about it. And we just fell in love with it. And it's a, you know, just the romance aspect of it. And we're like, that's the story that we need to tell. And that's the spirit that we're going to try to make because it's, you know, it's been a part of this landscape for, like I said, millennia. And going further down that road, um, there's evidence out there that 800 years ago, indigenous folks learned that the cooked plant leaves, they could put them in wells, add water to them, and it would ferment. And some of the petroglyphs, uh, specifically out on the Myers Spring Ranch, show the natives imbibing and paying homage to the plant. So the theory is, is that they were using it as an intoxicant during ceremonies. Mm. And so it's actually the first alcoholic beverage consumed in this part of the world. Spaniards came in the 1600s, brought the European distillation technology. Now we're drinking what is the Sotol that we know today. So it predates Mezcal, predates tequila. And we're like, that's the story that we're trying to tell, the history of that plant in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. And so we just fell in love with it. That's a beautiful story. I love that. And like you said, the, the connection and, and history is so uniquely Texas. How did you come up with the name Desert Door? Well, you mentioned connection. That's a, another cornerstone. So it's originality, authenticity, and connection. Those are the those are the three pillars at Desert Door. And that connection, will tie that into the, the nonprofit here shortly. We knew what we wanted to make, but we didn't know what to call it. So for the purposes of the class, we were extremely literal Texas. We were, the name of the company was 100 Proof, and the name of the spirit was 1836. Mm. And so we're, there was a couple panelists uh, that really liked that concept of 1836. However, thankfully, Specs has a brand that's called 1835, and we thought that we're going to have to spin off of that because there's just differentiating those two would be too challenging. We, we got connected via third party to a design team here in Austin that do a lot of lifestyle brands. And um, we just we went over and sat down with those guys because the three of us weren't necessarily on the same page ideologically of what a true Texas brand is. We all brought a little bit different Texas experience to it. And so we needed to get creatively and professionally on the same page Mm -hmm. ideologically. And so we actually came up with the name via this branding exercise. There's a card game that has descriptors on either side of it. You can buy it on Amazon. The name escapes me. But they have descriptors on either side, and they're the antithesis of one another. And so we were sitting in their studio passing around a bottle of Mexican Sotol, and going through the exercise of the brand is or is not. And the goal is to get the piles into is and is not. If you weren't sure, that was fine. But at the end of it, you had to pick up the not sure pile and get it in the is, is not pile. We completed that exercise twice, started a third. And then the uh, team goes, we got it. We understand what you're looking for. And we're like, you do? Mm-hmm. We're like, yeah, we know what you're looking for. We go, okay. Because so, we do, we still don't know. That's right. <laughs> and so um, a couple of days uh, later, we get an email. 
mm-hmm. and it had a list of 10 primary names and small alternates. They were all amazing names. Um, we settled on Desert, I mean, Desert Door was one that we all three, I mean, because when you talk about connection, right, and um, imbibing should be for that, it should be a transportive mechanism, you know, state, to put you in that state of reverence, right? And so Desert Door, we think of as a metaphor, and it's a metaphor on, on three levels. It's that personal metaphor, right? Puts you in that state of reverence. It's, it connects you. Whether you're opening the bottle of, you know, the door every time metaphorically, you're actually literally drinking Texas or you're drinking Texas history. But every time you do it, it puts you back in that first place where you had it, right? Mm-hmm. So that was where we just fell in love with the, the, the name because it, it, it connects you, whether that's with yourself spiritually, whether it's with your friends, whether it's with the outdoors in this case, or whether it's with music, arts. It's a, it's, it's, that's the, the connective piece to that. And did the branding agency help you with determining, well, obviously the logo, which is right. beautiful, but then the, the bottle, the selection of the bottle and on some of the, the varieties, you have like a little leather tag, and it's just so beautifully yeah, so put together. Yeah, so this is like how we, we so the, the blue bottle. One, how we uh, came up with that was just spending a lot of time in on this side of the bar was that we knew that very few people knew what Sotol was. Mm-hmm. That's still the case. And even fewer people were ordering it unless it was on a drink menu, which you could, you could never find that. Uh, so we knew that we couldn't necessarily compel them to go in and order, but we were looking at what's missing on the back bar. Mm-hmm. And where were, our, where were your eyes drawn to in what's largely a sea of clear and brown bottles? Where are your eyes drawn to? And so we felt that if we put it in an attractive enough package, we could at least compel them to ask the bartender, what is that? And so the blue bottle is, blue is one thing that we were always attracted to. And then when you, the brand Desert Door is, is rough hewn. It's rugged yet modestly refined, right? So how do you take something that has a 10,000 year history and bring it today, put some finer appointments on it, make it where it's still relevant, you know, but it looks old. And so we decided to go with ceramic. Again, another facet to the story is like when the technology improved such that the natives weren't using the leaves from the plant to drink from, and they actually had vessels, they weren't drinking from glass, they were drinking from pottery. Mm -hmm. So that's just another touch point on the history lesson. And then the embossing, you know, the the original has a white gold label uh, baked in, the aged has a yellow label gold, uh, yellow gold label baked in. And it originally did not have the leather strap on it. But the challenge was is that a bartender, if it's not well lit, we were getting some feedback that they're pouring the aged in where they would normally pour the original because the bottles look the same. And so what we did was with the leather strap, we added that and so that it was a touch point that they could immediately discern that, oh, that's the wrong bottle. That's how that came into being. And then the swing top, we just thought that that was really super cool and something, you know, like turn of the 20th century, kind of cool. Cobalt b- blue bottle reminds me of the, the historic bottles as well and the collector's I- items. And I, I love I love design. So I I sometimes will buy the tequila that just mm-hmm. has the prettiest bottle or right. <laughs> or no, it's, whatever. It's, it is. So it's 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 very smart. Um, and and I, I never want to get rid of your bottles because they're so beautiful. Like, how can I decorate with this? We actually got a, a, a direct message on Instagram that said, hey, have you guys ever thought of changing to a less attractive package because my girlfriend will not get rid of the bottles when they're empty? Exactly. 
exactly. <laughs> They're too pretty. You want to yeah. like put flowers in them or we use tiki tiki torches. Oh yeah, that's a great. Or idea. you can do wine and olive oil cruets. Yeah, and it has that perfect resillable top too. Mm-hmm. So tell us when and how Wild Spirit Wild Places came into the mix. Let me segue that and I'll turn it over to her. Okay. So the plant gave us the physical connection to the land, mm-hmm. right? And that's so we were thinking about. And since we wild harvest, sustainability very quickly comes to the forefront. And it's not just how you harvest. It's also how you process at the distillery. But as every small brand who's trying to grow up and be a bigger brand, you're trying to gain brand awareness. You're like, okay, the outdoors is very important to us. Who do we want to partner with, you know, and focus on the conservation efforts that are important to us? And after a couple of years of working with folks, you know, and once you make donations of certain entities, it's really they don't like to be told how to you know, distribute their their monies, and rightfully so, because what's keeping us from, like, forming our own nonprofit that we can focus on the conservation efforts that are important to Desert Door, which is ultimately directly land, clean air, clean water, those types of things. And so after a couple of brainstorming sessions, um, we formed uh, Wild Spirit Wild Places and um, kind of wasn't necessarily an active organization at the time. And then as we were looking to like, okay, we've got this nonprofit that we've established. We're not, we haven't really staffed it or, you know, we haven't really effectively done anything with it. And that lingered for about six months or so. And it just hadn't turned out that Karen was about to retire from the school system. We're like, if we're going to talk about, you know, conservation and education and research, I know a educational researcher. Let's uh, see if she might be interested in, in running with this. And so very thankfully she picked up the ball and is, and, um, we're now in our completing, I guess, almost our third year, and um, it's um, it's really exciting. Yeah. So, um, Wild Spirit Wild Places is a five hundred one c three nonprofit. Ryan Campbell was uh, responsible for putting in that paperwork with our government, and thankfully, we were approved um, one of the highest statuses. So that was in summer of twenty twenty, mm-hmm. when things had slowed down just a little bit, and so it gave. Um, us all an opportunity to start thinking about how we could take Desert Door and continue to make that connection and a lifelong impact. And as Brent said, we're all um, longtime Texans. Um, I'm sixth generation. My great-great-uncle fought at the Alamo. His name's on one of the epitaphs there. And, uh, you know, we have a history of ranchers and farmers and and, uh, folks with real connections to the land. So when we um, started harvesting and got to know the landowners in West Texas and those small communities, what really started speaking to our hearts was the the land and the current state in that 95% of Texas is privately owned Mm -hmm. and... We're losing thousands and thousands of acres a year to fragmentation and development. And on that, that's interesting of side note, that 95% of that land is owned by 200,000 people. So in a state of over 27 million, 200,000 people own 95% of the land. Yes. So it's very, very startling. And when you look at the quality of the land, much of it is not in good health. It's been overgrazed. It's been developed. And what that does is it impacts the quality of our water 
in our air, in our wildlife, and in just everything that lives and breathes in our world, basically. So we wanted to start looking at ways we could give back to the land and help others. And, and one of those things is creating a community and connection. So letting landowners know and communities know that you're not in this by yourself. It's not anything that one single person can do. We started out with a prescribed burn at one ranch before um, Wild Spirit Wild Places was a, a nonprofit. And it was a, you know, a labor of love and, and a volunteer opportunity for our staff. But what we, we found is in that coming together of the fire department and the landowners and the, the neighbors and companies, is there's these connections. And it's an opportunity for people to share their connections and also be committed to supporting our communities and land in the future. We don't want to be the generation that stood by idly and just watched things go by. Right. We have a grandson um, that we care about. I grew up in the country and played in the woods and rode my horses across all of these ranches. And my only rule was to be home by dark. And there's not a lot of opportunity for that anymore. And so that kind of speaks, you know, that's my personal connection. Um, so anyway, back to um, Wild Spirit, Wild Places. So as we were trying to decide what we wanted to be when we grow up, and as Brent said, we're in our beginning of our third year, we're still discovering that. But what we are finding is that by creating opportunities for people to come together to learn and to become connected. So what we're doing with Wild Spirit Wild Places is we select several land stewardship projects a year usually either one big one or, or maybe two. And then... How do you come by those? Do people come to you or do you select a, an area and You know, the them? first time, first two times, it just happened to be who we were talking to and just organic opportunities that said, oh, you're really having trouble with juniper removal over here in Wimberley. Mm-hmm. Our friend Josh Crumpton, that's how we got to know him. We want to learn more about what that means for the land. He said, well, come and learn and let's do it together. And we brought people in with us and we made it a volunteer project. And the landowner not only got some personal um, benefits from the juniper removal, but he lives right on the Blanco River. So guess what? The whole community benefits from that project because as the juniper is removed, then it allows the water to become pulled into the land by the grasses that grow in its place. And the water coat goes through the land and goes back into the water system, Mm -hmm. right? And so everyone benefits. So in the beginning, it it was um, opportunities such as that. Desert Door, you know, before Wild Spirit Raw Places, we started a, what we call the conservation series. So we do a limited release annually. Um, and the first one she mentioned, the ultimately what prescribed burns do is that, you know, we, we, we kind of joke that it mimics buffalo and lightning, mm-hmm. right? And so what Mother Nature used to do was keep, you know, the ecosystem in balance, you know. And then, of course, once you eradicate half of that, it makes it more challenging for Mother Nature to keep up with that. And then the native species, while they are native, you know, the sotols, the, all the succulents, the juniper, things of that nature, it gets out of balance, right? And then mm-hmm. the grasses go away because they lose out to the succulents. And so what a prescribed burn will do is it goes in and kind of rebalances things. Mm-hmm. And, then and you it can, provides a different nutrient source, right? That's like right. Even there are some seeds that won't, 
bloom or germinate sure. if, they're, if right. they don't go through a burn. And then the native grasses will come back. And what that does is ultimately puts water back into the aquifers. Mm-hmm. And so our first conservation series was, we called it, we made it from the burnt plants that were off of that prescribed burn, and we called it back burn. And so very limited release, but, um, you know, we used that, mo- those monies from that to actually seed mm-hmm. wild spirit wild places. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still one of our most popular releases to the date. People are still talking about it. Uh, three years later. Then she mentioned the project with Wimberley over at Spoke Hollow. That too was water-related, right? So we removed the cedar along the creek to start getting, hopefully getting water flowing back through there. And um, how do we capture the spirit of that project, right, in a bottle? And so we made a, um, a juniper with other Texas botanicals infused spirit. Think of it, think it like a gin, but it, uh, instead of using a a vodka is the basis for it. We use Sotol as the basis for it, and we call that Spoke Hollow. Uh, this year, we um, focused on our conservation efforts were more like, as far as we're developing that community, right? Because a lot of people, I, if they ever think about conservation, they probably think it's a, like this m- large movement, right? You, it's, mm-hmm. it's outside their reach, and they don't realize that there are little things that each and every one of us can do in our daily lives that isn't going to disrupt to make a difference, right? And so this one was focused around pollinators. And so, and it started with the bee, but then as you go down the route of the the bee, then you start learning about, well, birds pollinate, bats pollinate, you know? So, um, yeah, I never thought of, the, of like wasps and, you know, the, the things that you right. run away from or, you know, you think you're, you want to kill are great pollinators. Or, criti- or <laughs> they're critical right, to the ecosystem, right? right? Yeah. And so what Brent is talking about, so when they do the limited um, releases, a lot of the dollars that are gained from the sales of those um, limited releases go back into Wild Spirit Wild Places mm-hmm. to um, fund additional conservation projects for the next year. And so, as Brent was saying, we feel strongly that there's something every single person can do. One of the things that we did last year was bring a lot of the conservation organizations together Mm -hmm. um, to hold an education expo in uh, prescribed burns so that landowners could understand what goes into it and that they can actually do it themselves. But the cool thing about this is, is we brought in a lot of organizations that people are very familiar with, and they just don't know what they do and how they can get involved in. So it was um, organizations like Texas Parks and Wildlife, Texas Wildlife Association, um, the Texas AgriLife Extension Office from Texas A&M. It was a lot of groups like that, and, and landowners and the community members got to meet those people and understand more about the services and programs that they offer. And that's what we want, is we don't necessarily want to run a bunch of programs ourselves, we want to connect folks to the great work that's being done by other organizations that are well established. But it's that meeting point, it's that learning point. So again, this year we had an opportunity to assist Austin to getting their B-City USA certification from the Xerces Society. So what we did was we hosted installation of gardens at the Austin Science and Nature Center, and 
we had a series of education events. And so as Brent was saying, and that we were talking about all kinds of pollinators. So we had beekeepers come in and talk about not just honeybees, but all the different varieties of bees. We had Mr. Merlin Tuttle from the um, back uh, conservation group. He's the one that was responsible for saving the bats under Congress Bridge Mm -hmm. and educating people about bats. He came and spoke. We had um, just a a lot of different people come. And then those that are interested in different kinds of pollinators can come and learn more about them and then also learn about how they can support those kinds of pollinators in their own backyards or on their patio um, at, at their apartment on their high rise. You know, it's something that we can all do together. And so as um, we have those conversations, what is also really wonderful when you asked about how do we find projects, what happens is through those conversations, there's an informal needs assessment done. We can find gaps that aren't being served, and then that's the niche that we go and and attempt to lift up and serve in the meantime and get others connected to that, and then we can move on to the next project. So... The challenge is when you're trying to do that is like how do we capture the essence of that project in a bottle? That's mm. the challenge, mm-hmm. right? And so you're so doing both. You're you're going out and, and and aiding in this conservation project. You, I know, are like you're getting your hands dirty and mm-hmm. doing hard hard work. So you're really right. getting out there. Mm-hmm. You're bringing in these partners um, that are the experts in and but then you also have this business aspect to pull right. in. What we have coming up this fall is um, we have it's bird migration season and we're working with the Friends of the Night Sky in Hayes County and we have Texas A&M Ornithology Department coming over and we're going to be talking about dark skies and bird migration and lighting and you know it's it's something that we can all again play a part in so Mm -hmm. that's coming up for the fall. And we're also allowing or working with rather take out the allowing part (laughs) go. And we're also working with Texas A&M. They're coming out to our, uh, the Desert Door Ranch where they're actually uh, doing some studies with uh, respect to uh, airborne particulate, whether it's uh, native, organic or otherwise, and how that affects um, migratory bird reproduction. We were talking earlier about work-life balance, and as you can probably hear, we're out doing a lot of different things with a lot of different people and it's really exciting and fun and it's uh, engaging and so sometimes it is interesting how it's hard to draw the line between is this work or is this something that I'm doing for fun and personal Mm -hmm. um, fulfillment. Especially you have the, the distillery, which can be fun. You can like, c- create your own extended family and, you know, uh, community and, and friends. And that is also a lot of work. And then this is a passion project. So it's very much kind of weaved into all of the pieces of your, your life, personal and business. And then you guys are married and you've been married for you said 20, 22 years. We've been together 20 and 15. 15. Wow. So congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> Pretty, have you, you've been doing an amazing job at the business, and then, and then Wild Spirit Wild Places is phenomenal. Is that work-life balance the biggest challenge in all of this, or what, what has been your struggle? I don't really feel a struggle from the work aspect of it, because like you mentioned, not only is it a passion project, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're in a very, very unique position that I'm very thankful for that 
at the end of the day, we sell booze for a living, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's 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 supposed to be fun. And if it's not fun, you're probably doing it wrong. You know, so we, we are very blessed. The challenge is, when do you break away from that fun and find time to like, hey, we haven't been here in a long time, or hey, let's get away for this. There's always an excuse not to do those things. Mm-hmm. So that's where I feel the real challenge is, is like, um, you know, we don't have a free weekend. I just looked at the calendar, Karen. We don't have a free weekend until November. Mm-hmm. You know, there was something going on every weekend. So that's where I think it's challenging. Yeah, and, and some of that is fun. It, it's, but all, it's, it's, still, all, it's all fun. It's still related to work. That's and right. And it's still busy. How can we go do something to where it's not necessarily intended to be work-related? You're still willing to pick up the telephone. Like I mentioned earlier, there is no off switch. Mm-hmm. But I didn't come here to talk about the business. You know, I didn't go to this restaurant or bar to talk to the manager about the business. You know, it's like, how did we just go to experience something, right? I will say some of those time management principles that experts have been talking about for years and years and years that I considered interesting and would work for a lot of people I'm actively using now. So, for example... We've had lots of instances where we both schedule things on our calendars and then there's a conflict. So how do you make uh, the decision on which thing to go to do or do you do them separately? And that's fine. Uh, But what we found is it's much easier to have a joint calendar, give each other access to your work calendars so that we can make some wise decisions in the middle of planning rather than having to go back retroactively and make some adjustments. Mm -hmm. Scheduling personal date night is something I've heard since I was a kid. You know, my parents used to do that, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Now I understand that um, putting that on the calendar is important because it doesn't happen. It gets covered up with something else. Mm -hmm. And so it's just those little small things that mean make a difference they make a difference they absolutely do are there any other things that you have brought into your life to try to balance that uh that need and desire to always be thinking about the business well one thing that we've done is uh we have three german shepherds at the house and Mm -hmm. they do not understand external schedules or (laughs) work life um, as far as they are concerned that everything revolves around them so that forces us to divert our attention because when you've got somebody and i say somebody we think of them as people pushing a ball in your lap saying come on we have to go then then you do it and Mm -hmm. and it's important and it's fun so that's one of the things is find, I guess, if I were to make a recommendation is to find something that needs your attention, whether you feel like it or not in the moment, you know, if whether you're a dog person or a plant person or have an active, ho- I guess it's a hobby mm-hmm. is what I'm really mm-hmm. thinking about. Yeah, but that hobby actually like literally pulls at you and says, <laughs> yes. feed me, play with me. <laughs> what what else have you, what have you learned that you didn't expect? What I learned from starting a business that if you had a checklist of everything that you needed to do to get the get it off the ground, if you had that checklist before you actually took your first step that you wouldn't do it. Mm. It's not until you get so far down the road and realize how far you have to go and then you look backwards and go I can't turn back because I've come too far Mm -hmm. 
that's the biggest thing that I learned was that you don't realize how challenging this is on multiple levels and all the things that need to be done to actually just, you know, at least, I guess, appear that you're doing it well. Yeah. And, you know, um, a good point to that is you started with an official business plan that looked like you had all of your T's crossed and dies, I's dotted as much as possible. A lot of people don't start a business because they think they have to have everything in place before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I'm not ready to have kids. Well, you're never really ready. You know, I'm not ready to start a business. Right. I don't have all the, all the things in line. But, um, but my advice is similar to yours, that you get as much information, research, and, and planning as, as you can, but you're never going to know everything. You have to just get started. No, that's, that's right. And that was kind of the premise of the book that we used to build our business plan on. And it's a book called, you can get it off Amazon, it's called If You Build It, Will They Come? Hmm. And he speaks to the ready, aim, fire approach of starting a business. He said most people will go, raise a little bit of money or they have a little bit of capital of their own and they skip the ready aim piece and they just go straight to the fire because they think they have a good idea and it could very well be a good idea but the market may not be ready for it for a multitude of reasons and the numbers are that 90 percent of all new ventures fail as a result of that Mm. and 65 percent of new ventures within existing industries if they're doing offshoots fail. And so the whole premise is if you will go out, take your idea, do two days of due diligence, go do some market research, is it truly, is there, are you filling a void in the market with your idea? Is it different enough? And then validate your assumptions. Why, why is there a hole, you know, and then you've got to make the judgment if I, you know, if I fill this hole, are people going to be attracted to it? So, are they going to be willing to pay that's right. for it? That's, right. <laughs> that's the big question. Um, are you still excited? And it sounds like you are, but are you still excited and passionate about the distillery and the conservation? No, I, I like when I told you when I walked up here and I saw that bottle on the back bar at a, at a, you know, an outlet that I've never been to. It's every time I see that bottle on the shelf. It's like the first time every time. Mm-hmm. I am just absolutely astonished that, you know, something that didn't exist five years ago that, you know, people are actually really starting to, you know, it's starting to become part of their life, you know. I'm still very passionate about it. I think it comes from what I love about it is this whole project has come from the heart for every individual that's been involved. <laughs> um, we all have different strengths and ideas and thoughts but because it comes from the heart and we have a a sincere interest in working together um, not just within the company but outside of the company um, I'm just amazed at the conversations we are able to have and to learn so much that extends beyond what we are actually doing. Mm -hmm. And that's what speaks to me in that, you know, we're here today with you and getting to learn from you and having a really interesting conversation 
Um, you know, we will be in New York later this fall, and we have had an opportunity to meet folks there, and we talk about where we're from and what we're doing, and then just having these interesting conversations with different people is just absolutely amazing, and, and I feel so blessed that we're we're in this position. Um, and, and being something small is, is pretty, it's it's fine. I mean, we started, we're a small nonprofit right now. And I, when I was in a room with large nonprofits that are bringing in, you know, millions of dollars and have reputations and stuff, it's about the intent and the heart and where we can work together. And I find that really exciting. Last year, what she's mentioning, Desert Door was, um, Selected by Laura Bush's foundation, Texan by Nature, as one of the Texan 20 for last year. Wow. And so, so here we are with, you know, HEB, with Hewlett Packard, with Bank of America, with CMEX, with Alma, all these just, you know, Fortune, you know, 100 companies. And, and the nonprofits and are the Audubon yeah, Society yeah. and Texas Parks and Wildlife. And, and here's you know. little old Desert Door and Wild Spirit Wild Places, right? You know, it was an amazing, amazing experience to get to connect with uh, those folks. How do you feel that you were able to get noticed and get in to that circle? Was it your? Was it the amount of work that you have done, the type of work, the relationships that you have? What do you think got you there? Well, I found the application on their their website. And the interesting thing about that Laura Bush's, uh, former First Lady Laura Bush's foundation is that it was um, brought about to connect large corporations with Texas conservation issues. Mm-hmm. And so she and her her staff could provide a spot to make those connections and that's kind of what we want to do on a very microcosm scale if that's a word (laughs) but um so I looked at the application and the application was really interesting because it talked about what your objectives were right how you're going to measure it and all um but it asked a lot about your philosophy and not the impacts that you wanted to make were not only things that could be measured, but a little more qualitative. So, you know, we filled that out. And the interesting thing is, is I think Desert Door was selected because of just the mindfulness. We were brand new and the impacts that we were reporting were really small in just our little neighborhood and in the places that we harvest out west. But it was that we were being mindful and doing our homework and uh, being honest about where we were, you know, just saying we're not there yet. We're still learning. Can you help? And I think that is being vulnerable with another entity or person is really important because that way you can meet one another where you are and you can offer one another what you have and come together. You can do something really fantastic that way. Where do you see, what kind of projects do you think you'll be working on five to 10 years from now? What's your goal? So five to 10 years from now, I mean, even we're looking at um, water quality projects right now um, for the next next go round. But I see that as a long term 
project that, you know, if we look at the water quality of our rivers and streams that empty into the Gulf, and then the impacts that we have upstream on the Gulf, I think there's a lot of potential to really talk about that, um, because it it is thinking about Texas across the state and how it impacts basically the world through the through the Gulf. So I think we'll be looking at that long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we still are wanting to do things really, really well on a small scale for now. Oh, that's a great idea. That's where you have like true impact and you're not um, kind of skirting the surface. Right. And as I said, there are so many wonderful organizations that are um, doing some fantastic work and they really are the experts and they really do have the resources. Um, if I can connect others to those, I've, I've met my um, expectation for being um, helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the thing is the connections. We, we love our neighborhood because we're, we know our neighbors. We all stand in our front yards and we talk to one another. And that's what I would like to see in the conservation community too is let's, let's get to know one another. Mm-hmm. Let's help one another out. Mm-hmm. We're all here for the same purpose. Right. For those who aren't from Wimberley, tell us where Desert Door is. So Desert Door is in Driftwood, Texas, um, which is just about 15 miles from here. But we're um, about six, seven miles from Dripping Springs. We're just off 150 on Darden Hill Road. And we're about three, three and a half miles from the Salt Lake. And it's a beautiful place, Driftwood. This whole area of Texas is is magical, and it's such a fabulous place to, to have a project and a, and a business like yours and a perfect place for you to be spreading the word of, of conservation. There's a lot of growth that's happening as well, which means a lot of development and segmentation and all of that. Right. It is, it is a concern. And I think that the more that we talk about it and bring some awareness to the issue, then, you know, if you've recently acquired a gentleman's ranch of 20 acres, that's fantastic congratulations I would be thrilled to to have something like that myself let's think about how we can plant native plants to support our pollinators how we can protect the biodiversity on that small tract I mean it's just an awareness and education piece keep it Texas keep it it wild think about the little wild microcosms that happen you know just in your own backyard Mm mm-hmm yeah, small and large. There's there's really a lot of di- there, hopefully we can keep the diversity that we have here in Texas. Yes. Yes. And you know, that's not to say that um I'm I I have been talking small mm-hmm. and in, in at the individual level, but those individuals make up large organizations too. Mhm. And so I just feel like that there's a a lot of opportunities at all levels. Well, and the way I I look at um all things is that we're all individual humans mm-hmm. and then like your your um you know foundational um pillars are you know connection uh and communication and, and those things if you start with one individual human it becomes a group and a group mentality and, and makes the bigger impact from there yes so thank you so much for all the work that you are doing and for uh for desert door and so tall i, I definitely encourage everybody to check it out and to get a bottle for their friends and and um uh, 
get into that community as well. Well, thank you for sharing our story. We really appreciate yeah, really it. really appreciate the time today. Thank you for having us. And you're welcome. And thank you for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends. Follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. The mission of MVP Business is to dig deep into the lives of true leaders so that others can follow, knowing that the path isn't always easy, but the journey is worth it. So enjoy the day and live with passion.